Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've also wanted to share the amazing insights and stories from my clients and other amazing people I know. Every episode, you will hear inspiring stories, insider tips, and practical ideas you can use during these unprecedented times. I'd also love your help spreading the word about this podcast. Tell someone you know about this episode or post about it on social media. I'd be grateful. Today, I have a special treat for you. Let's see, how do I describe my conversation with Jeff Harry? Well, it's a wild ride. It's fun because Jeff is a play master and you'll learn a lot from joining in on our conversation. I know I did. This conversation is also personal. I may have told some of you that I'm not great at playing. Well, Jeff does some real-time play coaching with me, and it was insightful. So here's a taste of what you'll hear. I define play as any joyful act where you forget about time where there is no result, there is no purpose. You don't have anxiety about the future. You don't have regrets about the past. You are fully in the moment. And what I find that's the opposite of play is perfection. And perfection is rooted in shame. It's rooted in ego. For every one of your listeners, they're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. And this is not about them cashing it in for themselves. This is not about you. This has nothing to do with you, actually, which is ironic, but it's about the fact that someone cannot show up until you show up. I cannot show up on this podcast if Winnie doesn't take the risk of creating this podcast. Do you see what I'm saying? So when people ask, I want to have an impact on the world, I want to change the world, all you need to do is do the thing that makes you come most alive and actually show up. So my question to your listeners is, Are you ready to show up? Jeff Harry is the founder of Rediscover Your Play. He was selected by Engagedly as one of the top 100 HR influencers of 2020 and one of the top HR influencers to watch by Bamboo HR. His play work has been featured in the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and CNN. His mission is to fully embrace our own playful, nerdy genius, whatever that is, And by simply unleashing our inner child, we can find our purpose and in turn, help to create a better world. Jeff Harry, thank you for being on my show. It's funny because you and I have actually not known each other for very long. No. And in fact, we actually hardly know each other. (laughs) And yet during our first conversation, which was ironically fun, we ended up connecting in a lot of ways. And because of that and more, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But to be honest, I feel a bit torn about where we should focus today. Because on the one hand, I actually want to hear about your own leadership journey and a leadership challenge maybe that you face and how you've overcome it. I'm also curious if struggling with a particular leadership challenge actually led you to the power of play, which is now your trademark. And finally, I think I secretly want to get some personal coaching from you on how I can be more playful because I'm not. And maybe I even don't like it. Right. Okay. That's awesome. So are you up for all those? I'm up for all of it. And feel free to push back as much as possible. That makes it even more exciting. Okay, good. Okay, cool. Okay, so let's do act one then. So first, let's talk about you. 
I want to hear a little bit about your leadership journey, who you are and where you're at. Yeah. And I love that you say act one. I feel like I'm in this American life, like act one, (laughs) Ira Glass. So my Batman origin story starts with the movie Big. Do you remember the movie Big? with Tom Hanks. I do remember with the walking piano. Yes, yeah, so he goes, one of the most famous scenes in movie history, he dances on a piano and then he's offered a job to play with toys for a living. And when I saw that in third grade, I was like, you can do that? Like, that's a job? That's real? And I went to F.E.O. Schwartz, danced on a piano. No one offered me a job, super disappointed. So then I went home and I started writing toy companies in third grade. And I just kept writing them wow. all throughout junior high, all throughout high school. I was spamming before spam was a thing. And then sophomore year of high school, I got a letter from Cap Toys telling me to go to mechanical engineering. By the way, they went out of business soon after, so I shouldn't have listened to them. But that's what I did. I went to mechanical engineering, Tufts University, graduated, and then got in the toy industry. I got exactly what I always wanted. And it was playful and fun? Have you ever had what you wanted and then been so disappointed? Why is that story so common, right? What happened was no toys, no fun, no high fives, no kids. You know what was there? Cubicle walls, (laughs) databases, Microsoft access training. Like it was like, oh gosh, who died in here? Where is my soul? We might as well have been selling like pillows or microwaves because it really didn't matter. They were selling toys. It was just a plastic thing that needed to be sold. So not inspiring for play. Not inspiring at all. No. So I left New York, came to the Bay Area, despondent, quarter-life crisis, woes me. I found a job on Craigslist that was teaching kids engineering with Lego that was just playing for a living, $150 a week, seven people, joke of a job, Just something I'm just going to do for kicks while I figure out what I want to do next with my life. And I just kept doing it. And I was like, I'm getting paid to play. I'm going to make this a thing. So basically what we did, I joined that in 2004. We grew it into the largest Lego-inspired STEM organization in the U.S. That's amazing. And we did it all by playing. No business plan. No plan for how we expanded. We picked cities that we thought were fun. We picked people that we thought were fun. We failed miserably. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were playing all the time. That play sort of evolved. It led to success because we were resilient and adaptable and willing to try anything and saying yes to everything. And then what's interesting is that all of a sudden by 2011, we were teaching 100,000 kids a year. We got the attention of Silicon Valley because we're in the Bay Area, Facebook, Google, Adobe, PayPal, Netflix, all of them. And they were like, hey, do you do team building events? And we're like, of course we do. No, we didn't, but we just said yes to everything. And then for the next decade, I ran team building events for the top tech companies in the world. And you know what I found there? At the same time that they claimed disruption, innovation, risk-taking, all those things, not doing it. Or not doing it to the extent that everyone thinks they do. And what I realized was a lot of teams had not created a certain level of psychological safety. So I created Rediscover Your Play to actually address 
and build psychologically safe workspaces using positive psychology and play. So a lot of my workshops are around navigating difficult conversations, how to deal with that toxic person at work, how to get into flow, how to deal with your inner critic, all of that using positive psychology and play, because I realized that was what was missing in order to create the workplaces that we want to work in. The best organizations have psychological safety. What's the benefit of psychological safety? Higher productivity, morale is boosted, lower turnover, bigger engagement, because right now 85% of people before the pandemic are disengaged at work. Don't really care about work. That is problematic. Play for you personally is probably good no matter what, but when it comes to work and it comes to organizations and, and leaders that you're helping, impact has to be part of what you're doing with them. Yes. What's the business impact? A lot of times people think, oh, play, isn't that a nice to have? But what you're saying, it's not just a nice to have. Uh, we're actually talking about business impact that's going to exponentially make the business and your input, your output better because of those relationships that you're establishing through play and psychological safety. I don't even just say it's not only a nice, it's a necessity. And the reason why I say that is Stephen Johnson, this awesome author, said the future is where people are having the most fun. What are the organizations that are thriving right now or even in 2020? TikTok, Hulu, Netflix, Disney Plus. What are they doing that they are adapting and resilient. They're not fixated on a specific result because when you're not playing, you become stagnant. You become having that fixed mindset. And guess what's gonna happen when you do that as an organization? You will become the next blockbuster. There's another important connection. You haven't used the word failure, but I think that there's a link between what you were saying earlier. Play is about trying things out, which means you're going to be okay with things failing. And there's also a link between failure and psychological safety, because I don't think you can fail well unless you have that psychological safety. Absolutely. And actually, that is a huge part of play. If you think about a kid when they're riding their bike, if they failed and fell off their bike and were like, well, just never going to do that again, or walking, if they did what adults do to beat ourselves up, we're like, oh, man, this walking sucks. I'm never going to touch that again. No, they just keep freaking getting up and then they fall down they get up and fall down those are the organizations that are most successful i said this a lot in 2020 the organizations that thrived were the organizations that were most willing to fail if you look at nasa one of my former colleagues worked at nasa she was like we're sending a mars rover thousands of miles away we need to fail so much down here so we won't fail out there that's the whole point. We want to fail. That is the goal that NASA is trying to do in all its reps. So even when one of Elon Musk's rockets recently crashed and everyone was like, aha, look at you. It was like, good. That's good. It's just all lessons that we need to learn. And just going to tying it into plays, I define play as any joyful act where you forget about time where there is no result, there is no purpose. You don't have anxiety about the future. You don't have regrets about the past. You are fully in the moment. You are fully in flow. And what I find that's the opposite of play is perfection. And perfection is rooted in shame. It's rooted in ego. So I'm always asking myself whenever I'm making a decision, and you can as well, what is driving this decision I'm about to make? What is driving the action? Is it perfection or play? Is it ego 
or curiosity? Is it shame or experimentation? Because if you think of Google, Facebook, all of those major organizations, when they first were starting out, they were just playing. That's why they were successful. They had the audacity to be like, let's make a search engine that will connect the whole world. I want everything to be bought online. That's ridiculous. Now, I don't praise Jeff Bezos at all because I don't like his business practices. But especially early on at Amazon, if you watched one of the documentaries in 98, 99, everyone wanted to hang out with him, even though like no one was getting paid back then because they were doing the most fun projects, the most interesting work. And again, your future is where the fun is. So everyone's gravitating towards the fun. So if your organization is not having fun right now, you're going to be obsolete. Tell me a little bit about impact and how you define play as losing time and it not being geared towards purpose. But at the end, that does link to impact. Yeah, it sometimes has an ROI value. So perfect example of this is Google does a 20% program where they give their staff a fifth of their time to pursue whatever is curious to them as long as it helps the business. They give them a playground to play and do whatever they want. What has come from that program? AdSense, which pays the bills. Google Meet, which so many people use. Gmail, which basically is the build so much of the foundation of Google. So when you're willing to do that with your staff, now you can't give them a fifth of their time to pursue their stuff. Maybe that's too long. But if you, as a team leader, I would ask team leaders, what is your staff's zone of genius? Gay Hendricks talks a lot about this. You have your zone of incompetence, things you suck at, zone of competence, things you're average at, zone of excellence, things you're really good at, but you don't really care to do them either way. You just get paid to do them. But what is your zone of genius? What is the work where you forget about time? What is the work that if no one was paying you, you would still do it? Does your team leader know what that is for you? Your flow work, your red thread work, as Marcus Buckingham refers to it? Because when you actually go to your staff and you go, all right, I want you to actually focus more on your flow work, your zone of genius. What is it? What do you love to do most at this job? Oh, well, I love to talk to, to clients. Oh, awesome. How much time do you currently, let's look at your whole schedule for the week. How much time do you currently spend talking to clients? 15%? You only speak to them 15%? What are you doing? Invoicing, emails, all this. How can we help you get from 15 to 20%? We're talking about like one to two extra hours. But when you actually help them do that, not only does it communicate to them that you see them, right? And that you care about them, thus reducing turnover. But studies have shown that when they're doing their flow work, it has an exponential increase in all the other work. Five times more productive when you're in your flow state. Adults are so sort of deadened maybe to their zone of genius. What is it that they actually really want? And it's not just about play. I think it hits on a lot of things. I don't know if we are clear on what we really want in a lot of areas. And unless we know what we want, we're never going to get it. But let's have some compassion for ourselves, right? How did we get to this place? How did we get to the place where us adults don't play? And my answer is always 148,000 no's. By the time you reach the age of 18, you have heard the word no approximately 148,000 times, according to certain studies. You've heard the word yes eight to 10,000 times. So you're dealing with that. And then on top of that, think about your whole childhood. 
Your adults were always shooting on you. You should do this. You should do that. You should major in this. You're like, I'm six years old. Like, what are you telling me? People are putting their own anxiety upon you as a kid. Then you get to your teen years, and especially for teenagers now, which is really rough, is you get inundated with more information in a day than most people get in the 1950s in an entire year. And what is that information all telling you? You're not enough. You should buy more Amazon Prime gift boxes. You should do this. But anything you do, don't be you. Don't be yourself. So you're dealing with all of that, that it's such a revolutionary act to play, to start a podcast, to make a ridiculous video, to put on a costume and dance around the room. It's so hard because everything external is telling you not to. Tell me a little bit about your leadership journey. What could you tell us about a leadership challenge that you faced in your career and how you overcame it? Yeah, I built an entire program called Dealing with Toxic People at Work Through Play with my friend Gary Ware. And the reason why I built it was because of my experience dealing with the toxic people. (laughs) You know, so many different jobs where you're like, How is that person in charge? Who promoted that person? Why are they so mean? I love to go to studies because they're like, well, you know, maybe that's just my experience. But Sherm did a study that found that just in the last five years alone, before the pandemic, by the way, $223 billion had been lost by Fortune 500 companies alone due to turnover because of a toxic person. And these are only the companies that are willing to say that. I'd be in situations where... I was talked over where I was dismissed. Clearly there was some racism that was in there. I remember I was at one, I'll just say it, I was at Toys R Us. I was working for the Toys R Us Corporation, working in their labor planning department in New Jersey. Which by the way, your third grade old self, that's like your ideal job working at Toys R Us, right? I'm like, I'm at Toys R Us. I'm in their corporate office. They have a toy wing. Like this is gonna be really cool. I just have to work my way through all this. One of the things we had to make reports analyzing why certain stores would be able to sell more product than other stores and see how much people actually engaged with the customers. I wrote a whole report being like, well, you got to take in consideration in Japan, they don't want to be approached as much as they do in Spain or in England or in Canada. And someone was just like, Yeah, no, that's not relevant. Anyway, like we were saying, and it was like, are you serious right now? Like, I'm I'm the only person of color in this group, and I'm trying to help this organization out right now, and you're just dismissing it as just stupid? The amount of microaggressions, the amount of times that toxic person got other people to quit that I was friends with, and I had to deal with that, the amount of times they would take over space in the meeting— All of that trauma eventually led to me sitting with my colleague, Gary Ware, and just being like, did you have that in your old jobs? I had that in my old jobs. We shouldn't tolerate this anymore. We should make a workshop on this. We're going to call it dealing with a-holes that work through play. That's what we're going to do. And you know what? We did it. Do you have a specific example of how you dealt with that toxic culture at Toys R Us with play? I didn't have it at that organization, but at other organizations I do. Because remember, when I consider play, I feel everyone's playing already. Everyone's playing a character 
that they don't want to play. They're trying to be professional. They're trying to pretend like they know what they're talking about. Everyone's playing something. And I'm like, why don't we just play roles that we actually want to play? So one of the things that I learned how to do to deal with the toxic people, I started working with other staffers and be like, yo, this toxic person takes up a ton of space at meetings. We're not going to allow that anymore. We're going to start setting boundaries. Hey, Sam, if they cut you off, I got your back. And we're going to do this over the next three to six months, just slowly occupying space at the meetings, right? Also, we won't have that toxic person at meetings. Hey, you know, Chad, I always use Chad as the example. So sorry if there's a Chad. In there. <laughs> sorry, Chads. Hey, Chad, let me save you a meeting. We're going to yes and at our meetings. And then I'll talk to you afterwards when we have really good ideas. And then you do what you do best, which is poke holes through it because we need someone to do that. So flipping it on them, like redirecting it, right? Then this much more challenging way, confront Chad directly, confront the toxic person directly. Don't attack character, actually address behavior and the impact it's having. Hey, Chad, when you cut off Sam at the meeting, what you're communicating to us is that you don't want to hear us at this meeting. Is that what you're trying to say? I don't want to assume that, but that's what's happening. A lot of times it was like, oh, I didn't even know I was doing that. Other people, though, were like, yeah, whatever. I don't really care what they think. So when that happened, then I would talk to their supervisor or their supervisor's supervisor, but I wouldn't talk from a complaining standpoint. I would be like, yo, I know Chad is our brilliant jerk because usually they are. They bring in a ton of money. I know Chad is our brilliant jerk, brought in $1 million last year. He also got four people to quit, and that cost us $1.5 million. So when you talk about the impact and you know the motivation of that team leader and just be like, I know your bonus was less last year. Mine was as well. Do you know why? Yeah. Do we want to address this or not? And then that leader either is just like, we'll address it, or they won't. And if they won't, then that tells you probably not want to be there anymore. There's actual clear physical ailments you start to build up with because of all the anxiety going to work. And then the last way, and I learned this the hard way, but dealing with my inner Chad, there's a reason why Chad triggers me. That toxic person triggers me because a part of me thinks maybe I shouldn't get paid as much as that person. Maybe I shouldn't be speaking up in meetings because I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I shouldn't even be in the room. But once you identify, that's not true. I should be Chad's boss. I should be getting paid twice as much as him. These are the things that actually need to be happening. The next time Chad is super rude to you, I would be like, yo, don't ever disrespect me that way. Ever. And when you say that in front of everybody else, Sam, Winnie, Jeff, all of a sudden they're like, oh, damn. Like, you stood up to Chad I now have the bravery to stand up to Chad. And that's also play too, because you're giving them permission to try this out as well. And once everyone starts setting boundaries like that, it's toxic for Chad. And then they have to decide, does my behavior change or do I need to leave? And I've seen this take years. I remember telling one of my bosses for years how to deal with this person. 
and it took forever, but eventually that person went, got therapy, addressed stuff, still was grading, but not as bad because they had made themselves more aware because the boss was like, listen, if you don't get your act together, I got to let you go. I like you, but I have to let you go because we're losing a lot of people and a lot of money. So what's interesting about that example is that you've offered a lot of different avenues to work with that person, right? So one of it is how do we use that person's skill in the best way possible? Maybe they shouldn't be in the room and we bring them in later. I'm so glad that you didn't leave it there <laughs> because then another option, which this is not working, and I do this with my clients a lot around feedback, get to the behavior, right? So this is what we're experiencing. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. And you're right. So many times they're not connecting what they do to other people's reactions or perceptions. And so I love that. And then this last one of you just saying, okay, now it's just not acceptable. So you're calling out the behavior. You had compassion. There's some compassion there, but you're calling out and saying, this is not acceptable to me. And then you're mentoring and sort of modeling that for other people. And they're going to feel courageous and confident to be able to do the same thing. But you're also creating culture there. Yes. You're creating that culture of this is how we work together. This is what acceptable and not acceptable is. Every time you set a boundary, you start to change the culture. And then let's talk about difficult conversations as it relates to play and practice. I talk about this all the time. In football, they practice all week for a three-hour game. In work, no practice. You never get to practice anything. How many leaders do you know that should not be leaders? that got promoted uh -huh. because they were good at the last job and then no one taught them how to be a leader. They maybe went to like one workshop once. They don't even know how to facilitate a meeting well. So we have no practice in anything and especially in difficult conversations. So no wonder we don't have them. No one has ever taught us in school, in college, at work. So what do I do in our workshops? We practice. We create a playground, a psychologically safe space where we're like, okay, tell me what your toxic person sounds like. Okay, all right, go. Start saying stuff to me. I'm going to be mean back to you. I'm going to make it as awkward as possible for you. How was that? Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And the more reps you get, the more you realize it's just not that bad. Yeah, I did acting when I was in high school and college. And when I talk to my clients and we're talking about imposter syndrome, or you're talking about getting promoted and it's a big promotion and you're a little bit nervous. And I always ask them to think about them playing a role. You're stepping into a role and you're going to now be that new executive or that director or vice president. And imagine yourself being in the room with your peers, right? Or that really important client meeting. And so in some ways, what I feel like you're saying is that the practice and the training is about imagining being in that role and figuring that out. Have you done some of this also with people who are struggling with imposter syndrome? Is there a link there as well? I could get into the playing with your inner critic in a moment. That's a whole other process that's also super fun. My friend Keisha, who I met on Clubhouse, taught me this. She came up with an acronym for fear, and fear is false evidence appearing real. Ooh, I love that. Right? Fear, false evidence appearing real. Right, Keisha? Ooh, Keisha, I love that. I know, it's so amazing. And it was like, but that's it. We psych ourselves out so much. And then you know what we do? And this is just so problematic. Is then we're like, you know what? I'm going to have that conversation. I'm going to have that difficult conversation. And we build up 
We're going to do everything in this one conversation. And it's like, oh my gosh, you've gone from no conversation to now in an hour, you are going to build a relationship that has been fractured for the last decade. Really? You're going to do that? We put so much pressure on ourselves. And the reality is it's small, difficult conversations over time, small micro conversations, setting boundaries, being disappointed, that toxic person taking the meeting over again, back and forth. It's a lot of that. And we try to tell that to a lot of our clients too. This is no silver bullet thing. And if you don't practice this, then this workshop doesn't even matter. Yeah. My success when I run these workshops is being able to contact them in two weeks or a month and being like, how many difficult conversations have been had? That's it. And that's a question I have for your listeners. How many difficult conversations are you having? How many are you actually putting yourself in? And I'll give you a perfect example of one I had. I'm left-leaning. I'm on the political left-leaning side. Uh I recently, because I knew somebody that was a strong Trump supporter, far right-leaning, huge YouTuber, and I was like, hey, let's have a conversation. Nice. Let's have a conversation on your YouTube channel And a thousand people showed up to it or maybe more. Wow. And we had this YouTube live. How long did it last? Three hours. Whoa. Three hours. And what did I learn? I learned this from my friend, Eric Bailey, who wrote this book called Cure for Stupidity. And it was like, you either go into the conversation to be right, or you go into the conversation to understand. Very good. You're either curious or not curious. Growth mindset, fixed mindset. There were so many things she said that triggered me, and there were so many things I said that triggered her, and we had to just keep going back to understanding. Tell me more. Let me not assume, because a lot of times I was assuming things about her that are not relevant. We're not true, right? Like, she doesn't agree with people that hold the Confederate flag or the Nazi flag. And I was like, but you're at the same protests as them. That doesn't mean I agree with them. Wow, I never even thought about it that way. That's so interesting. So it was fascinating. And one of the best results of that were there were people in the comments that were like, I like this conversation. I think more of these conversations are gonna have. I'm gonna ask someone I disagree with to have a conversation like this because this is the only way we're gonna do this. We need to be practicing this. And the only way we do that is to take ourselves outside of our comfort zone. So maybe it goes back to Chad too, is you're seeing them as human. Yeah. And you're saying, I wanna connect with you and I care about you, even if we wholeheartedly disagree on a lot of things. You're still a human being. Exactly. And also, We have to be careful of being the heroes in our own story. Because when we're the heroes, everyone else is the villain. (laughs) I was just talking to someone the other day. We were addressing this, and they were like, Chad is just horrible. It's always going to be toxic. Well, that fits your story. It fits your story that there's nothing you can do. But if we try to understand it and maybe have some empathy or compassion, maybe that person will change. But as long as you see them, like it's a given There's no curiosity. Well, and also making Chad the villain maybe distracts you from your inner Chad critic. It does. Then you don't have to address that. So then getting into like the inner critic stuff, I run a workshop called Playing With Your Inner Critic. And here's a technique anyone can do, really simple, but also super hard. Here's the challenge. The next time you're feeling really crappy, like really horrible, Guess what? Your inner critic has been hanging out, beating you up for a really long period of time. Now, we have to understand what your inner critic is. Their inner critic is there to protect you from all of the dangers that are out in the world. I think a lot of times we feel like we need to silence it, but it's there 
for survival. It's supposed to be like, yo, watch out. Remember what happened in high school? What happened in third grade? Don't do that again. So when your inner critic shows up, here's the challenge I would give you. Start writing down what it's exactly saying. <laughs> right. Just write it on a piece of paper just to be aware of this. I learned this from a Cassiana Barr, an amazing therapist. And she was like, just write it all down, all the thoughts. You yeah. suck. You're never going to be enough. No one loves you. You're always going to be broke. All of the worst things. Write them all down, as many as you can. And then as you write them down, look at that list and wonder with curiosity, who does this sound like? What character does this sound like? And then what does character look like? And I learned this from my friend, Marsha Shandor, that was like, it's all about naming your inner critic. So when you identify what it looks like, what it sounds like, and you know what it's going to say, then actually name it. Name that inner critic. Mine is named Gargamel. Why is he Gargamel from the Smurfs? Because he takes all the joy out of everything. So Gargamel will show up. And the reason why you make it a character is once you are able to disassociate it from you, you're not attaching it and believing that's you now. Yeah. You're seeing it as that's third grade me. That's Gargamel. And then you can turn to Gargamel and when Gargamel's like, you're always going to be broke. And it's like, actually, that's not true. My bank account's doing well. Well, you're never going to be loved. Well, I'm actually surrounded by a lot of people that love me. You can actually respond to it. Or what I do sometimes with my best friend, Dana, is I'll text her when it's really loud. And I'll just be like, Gargamel is saying these things to me. That's it. She doesn't even have to respond to me. <laughs> but once I text her... It shines a light on Gargamel. It gives Gargamel or that inner critic the attention that it's seeking. And then once you do that, then it's able to quiet down. Here's the ironic part. Once it quiets down, you go back to that list of all those mean things and you flip them. And you go, actually, I'm going to be extremely wealthy. Actually, I'm surrounded by people that love me. Actually, I am really productive. And when you flip them and you start saying that back to yourself as a mantra... I know a lot of people think mantras are woo-woo. Positive psychology, positively priming your brain by saying these mantras sets a pattern so you can look for these patterns. So many successful people do that. Olympians do that all the time when they manifest how they're going to go through that bobsled thing. So when you're positively priming yourself and doing those mantras, all of a sudden your inner child shows up that inner curiosity, and you start doing things that you used to never do, and you start listening, you're like, ooh, why don't I start that podcast? Ooh, why don't I do that video? Ooh, why don't I take this risk? Perfect example, two nights ago, I ran a clubhouse room called Power of Play. One of our games was name something that both scares you to do, but also really excites you. My friend, Tatiana, was like, I've been wanting to run a room called the ASMR art room, where I just make noises making art. Oh, interesting. I've been wanting to do this room for the longest period of time. Sweet. You have 24 hours to do it. She sets up the room, tags me on it, invites a bunch of people. 175 people went through that room. That's amazing. We were on for two and a half hours last night. People coming up and just making a noise and then everyone guessing it. That was it. That was the room. <laughs> so much fun. Greatest thing that happened, two blind people showed up. Oh, wow. And one of the, his name, I think, was Scott. Not only did he play a sound, but then afterwards explained how this app, Clubhouse, he loves it so much because it has shown many people that have sight to actually appreciate sound and appreciate your voice more. 
all of that organic magic does not happen if she doesn't take that risk and listen to her inner child. Right. This is the magic that happens when you can play. A word that you haven't used, but I'm thinking about is experimentation. Yeah. Just giving yourself permission to experiment. So you don't have to commit to a big thing. Yeah. Just experiment with this one little piece and take a little step. Right. And see where that leads and maybe take another step. And I think that maybe helps give people a little bit more freedom or not so much fear in trying it out. And remember, it's not even about the act. It's about the idea of, I'm scared of the deep end of the pool. Let me go out there. Oh, it's actually not that bad. Okay, maybe I can go farther. Now I, maybe I can go out to the ocean. Okay, it's not that bad. So here's a fun thing. Reach out to three to five of your closest friends. Okay. And ask them these two questions. What value do I bring to your life? Because I think a lot of times we don't know or we've forgotten. What do I do for you? Like, why are we friends? Because that's just great to get all that love back. So what value do I bring to your life? And then the second question, when have you seen me most alive? And that's based off the Howard Thurman quote, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is for more people to come alive. So another way of asking this, when have you seen me most playful, most creative? And the reason I say three to five different friends is when you ask those questions to them, you're going to get so many different answers and so many different perspectives. And you'll also realize which friends do I feel comfortable enough to even ask these questions to? I don't know. Should I ask them? But when you get all the answers, answers back, you will look at the patterns that form and it will show you ways in which you can play. And then you can go back out to those same friends and you go, hey, look, can you help me brainstorm ways in which I can play more? And then can you commit with me to actually doing that as like a play partner so we can actually explore? Because everyone plays differently. I worked with a lawyer once that was like, I don't play at all. And then I go, what do you do? And she goes, I take people that hate each other and get them to agree on one thing. Oh, that's cool. And I was like, oh, tell me more. And she was like nerding out on it. And I was like, that's your play. That's your play. No judgment. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do regular play. You don't have to do like hula hooping. Your play is, again, any joyful act where you forget about time where you're creating something that didn't create before. So are we in the coaching section now? I guess we've organically found ourselves here. Look at us. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit better because there probably are some things that I do that I love. Like I love to cook. I love to have people over right. and cook for them. So there might be some things I'm already doing. But now I actually have another question for you as it relates to me and play is kids. I'm a parent and I've got a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 7-year-old. Yeah. Ooh, such cool ages. They are cool ages, actually. The age 7 to 10, such a sweet spot. I love those kids. So how do I get to the point of really playing with my 7-year-old? She's a great kid, lots of energy, extroverted, loves Legos. Oh, awesome. Can't go wrong there. She does have a really great imagination. And I'm tired at the end of the day. How do I become the parent that didn't install in her... 50 million no's that you described at the beginning of our conversation. Not only for her as she develops into a beautiful, amazing woman, which I'm sure she will be, but then also engage with her in play. First off, you got to give yourself compassion because I'm sure you're doing a kick-ass job already. The role is difficult enough, okay? <laughs> parents, because I've worked with a lot of parents, put so much pressure, so much pressure on ourselves. 
And nobody knows what they're doing. Again, nobody knows. Even with all those parenting books, nobody knows, right? We're all figuring it out. And we're all going to pass on some trauma to them. And that's just the reality of what's going to happen. We just want to minimize the amount. And I also learned this from Gwen Gordon, my play mentor, who said, you actually can't play while you're in an anxiety-ridden state. You can't play when you're angry. You can't play when you're really tired. So you have to first identify what actually calms you down, what actually soothes you before you can actually play. First step is soothing yourself. I take a shower. That calms me down. I do morning pages. I go on a walk. Even if it's just for a minute, that calms me. And then the second thing is that I allow myself to actually get bored. Because when I get bored, that's when you have your best ideas. I don't think a lot of times we let our kids even get bored enough. But when you get bored, you're actually able to get quiet enough so you can hear your inner child. But then tying it into your kids, I think when we play with our kids, we play with them in two ways, mostly in one way. Let me supervise you as we play. Where I'm playing, but I'm also thinking about, oh, I got to do laundry, and I got to do this, and then what time she's going to go to bed. And I challenge you to instead allow yourself to be in her world. Actually dive into that world. When you have enough energy. So if you don't have the energy, then don't do it. Just do it when you do have the energy. A third way you can get to play with her, and also with the 13 and the 17-year-old, is show them how you used to play. They see you as a parent so much of the time, they rarely see you as a play partner. But I remember my mom never played that much with me. But the one time she did, I was walking home and she just started throwing snowballs at me. And I didn't know who that was. I'm like, who in the world is that? That's my mother. <laughs> oh my goodness. And she only did this for like one to two minutes. One of my most memorable moments of my entire life. Aww. Again, it doesn't have to be that much. You go into your 13 or 17-year-old and being like, all right, fine. Actually show me what you do all the time. And they're like, why? Do you really want to do this? And be like, show me what you do when you do TikToks. Just show me what, just be interested and be curious about their world as a human being separate from you where you're not trying to make them perfect right now, but you're seeing them as a separate entity. So a couple things I got. One is I love this idea of a transition. That's helpful because I think we all are struggling with that because everything's just blended in. So what you're saying is in order to get to a place of play, you probably need a transition time to get there. Yeah. You can't jump from work to play. So that's helpful. The other thing that I liked was you can't play when you're in a state of stress. Therefore, that transition time is even more important. You want to give her time when you really do have the energy. But then you have to then think about what am I doing to take care of myself so I can show up more for her. I'm not going to be perfect. So you're saying I have to play so that I can play with her. Exactly. You need to play to play. And however you want to do that, that's for you to explore. Exactly. Adults are so fixated on results and expectations are such the thief of joy. And we have to realize results are not what's going to bring us happiness. Michael Phelps, 23 Olympic gold medals, goes right into depression afterwards. Anthony Bourdain has the job that everyone wanted. Wasn't enough, right? So we have to be careful of fixating our happiness on results. And that, when you are able to really practice being in the moment, think of your favorite moments of your life. When you look back at the end of your life, 
Are you going to be thinking of your most productive moments? Are you going to be thinking of your accolades and your awards? Or are you going to be thinking of your fun, joy, play moments? And if that is the case, how can I create more of those fun, joy, play moments with my family and have that as a priority for the day? I'm curious if you think that people of color, maybe even LGBTQ, are there special challenges that people might have to getting to play? You're right. I mean, there's a certain level of privilege to play. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because you have time. You have a lot more time. There's a certain level of privilege, but I will say this. What's interesting is, so I have family in the Philippines and I have family that live in Manila, the capital, and they're quite affluent, very stiff. Okay. Not very playful. Not very playful. I go out into the rural areas of Sutter Ciso, where I have other family, where they live on dirt floors. They're playful. So much more playful. So much more. And I talk about something I refer to as affluent deadness. I know rich people. I know famous people. I know people that have influence. Not that happy. Not that happy at all. If anything, a lot of rich people that I know suffer from this deadness in their eyes. And I'm like, what is that? Either they're worried about losing all their money or they're paranoid because I have $5 million, but this person has $10 million. Or they thought when they reached this point of wealth, everything was going to work itself out. And it's not. And they're super disappointed. And the worst part about it is that they hop on Instagram and post about how amazing their life is. And then you're like, wait a minute, that's not actually how you feel. And they're like, yeah, but it's the only time I get validation. So then they're constantly selling a lie to everybody else. And I've noticed with more people of color, and I'm half Caribbean, half black, I am so much more comfortable having conversations with all of my black and brown friends, my POC friends, because we can shoot the stuff and we can make fun of each other and we can roast. But sometimes when I'm hanging out with a lot of my Caucasian friends, so stiff. Yeah. Why are we all so stiff? What is happening? <laughs> a lot of POCs learn to code switch a lot. Yes. We're professional and then we have our own thing. But a lot of people, I guess what you would refer to as like white culture, don't have that. Right. You don't have a place where you're going to just be real with everyone. I want to be real all the time. As my business mentor, Stephen Worley, would say, I want to get paid to be me. How do I get paid to do exactly what I would do even if no one was paying me, okay? So the other part is tying play and perfection. Play being the opposite of perfection and also play being the opposite of shame. Who do I like to hang out with most? The shameless. The people that are the first on the dance floor. The people that are willing to speak up when no one else is saying something. The people that are just willing to experiment. The people in the back of the room during a class when everyone's serious and is like, this is stupid. Those are my people. That's the people I want to hang out with, and that makes me happier. So you have to ask yourself also, as you're listening to this, how many people do you hang out with that you consider playful? How many people can you actually be your real self with? And if not, how do we change that? Where are those people in your life where you can do that? Because that is going to energize you more. The reason why you're so exhausted at the end of the day is because you've been playing a role you don't want to play all day. The less you do that, the more energy you're going to have. How do you coach yourself? What are your personal play struggles? So here's a way in which I coach myself. I know I need to start my day with play. So perfect example is today. 
I made a TikTok to start my day, right? I had worked on it the night before and today I was so excited to make it and share it and I was just so amped about it. And my friend Desiree taught me this question that's awesome called, how can it get any better than this? So whenever something happens, even if it's just a little good, just ask yourself with curiosity, not with longing, not with focus on results, but just being like, ooh, how can it get any better than this? So I was like, I made my TikTok to start today. Ooh, how can it get any better than this? Then I hopped on my cheap, janky, juicy podcast. That's the name of the podcast I'm doing with my friend Damien in Virginia. And we had an hour and a half long discussion about the craziest things. Ooh, how can it get any better than this? Then I hopped on with my positive psychology play mastermind people where we all celebrated our wins and high-fived each other, and I had an epiphany there that I was like, oh, I need to talk more about that. How can it get any better than that? Now I'm on this podcast with you. Boom! It can't get any better than this. This is it. So let's talk from a positive psychology standpoint. I am now priming my mind to look for the next best thing. I am looking for that pattern and I'm laying the foundations in my mind to look for that. Now, what do most people do? They say, oh, I had a bad day. No, you didn't have a bad day. You had a bad moment. And thoughts last between nine seconds and 90 seconds typically. So what you had was you had a bad moment, then you ruminated about that moment and you ruminated and you ruminated until a thousand times over, you've primed your mind to then look for the next bad moment and the next bad moment and the next bad moment, thus resulting in a bad day. So you can shift it by simply asking, even when things are not going well, okay, oh man, it's been rough so far. How can it get any better than this? And by just simply doing that, you can shift your day and you can shift your life. What misconceptions might we have as leaders around play and how do we overcome those so that play can be accessible no matter who we are? Because I think as leaders or as we get promoted in our career, it feels like play becomes less and less accessible. Sure. So the misconceptions about play, especially in the working world, it's frivolous. We don't have time for that. And the reality is your business will only survive because of it. I'm not just being dramatic about this. This is real. Adaptability, resiliency, willingness to fail. If you don't have those as your organization, I'm sorry, you're done. Because people will leave. If you don't go into this new normal with more shared humanity for your staff, like here are the tips I'd give to a leader. Find out your staff's zone of genius, all right? Figure out your own zone of genius, your own flow work. Identify that. Then figure out with your staff how they can do X percentage more of that zone of genius. Second tip, find out their language of appreciation. Do you know their language of appreciation? If it's words of affirmation, have you given praise to them outside of the department? Because maybe one day they want to get promoted to a different department. Do you acts of service? Would you be willing to take up some of their work on Friday so they can go home early because you know there's stuff happening at home with their family? Oh, they love gifts? Do you know that if you spread out a bonus over the span of a year, same amount of money, spread it out over the year, every time they do something well, more likely to be productive because of that. Play with that. You need to understand your staff. If you actually sat with your staff and said, hey, I know we're taking on a new project and I know we do it this way all the time. I am going to give you the freedom to tackle this a totally different way. And frankly, I don't care if you fail and you allow for that psychological safety. Do you have any special 
ways in which people can connect to play as we're all working from home and we're all isolated behind screens? Yeah, I do a workshop with my colleague Lauren Yee called Your Future's Where the Fun Is. And what we do is we ask people, what did you love to do as a kid? So what I love to do as a kid is I love to take all of my board games and connect them together. So Shoots of Ladders, Candyland, Clue, Monopoly. I built this epic long board game, and then I had my sisters play it with me, and they hated it. <laughs> but I loved it. I loved it. But what did I love about that? So I break down the play values that existed there. I love creating experiences. I love building memories. And I love connection and creativity. Those are my play values. So... Then I take those play values and think of how does that tie in with the stuff that I do now? Do I do anything that does that either in my work or outside of my work? So for example, for you, what did you love to do as a kid? So the first musical I ever saw was in Chicago and I saw Annie. And when I got home, I think my mom probably bought me the tape or the record and I memorized all those songs. And then I got a bunch of kids from the neighborhood <laughs> to come in. I don't remember actually doing a performance, Yes, but I remember bringing them in and be like, okay, you have this role, you have this role, and we're all going to like sing and we're all going to like do this thing. Oh my gosh. I'm nerding out so much. <laughs> so let's explore that. Okay. What is it about that? that you loved so much? What are the values that you feel like represented that? First of all, I really like to bring people together mm -hmm. around something that's important and or enjoyable that we can all participate in. So everyone's an equal, everyone can come in and participate and give. But there was also a creative element to that. And there was also maybe an encouragement to try something new because probably not everyone I recruited really wanted to do it. <laughs> So convincing people to do it and convincing them to be fun. Ah, okay. So what I'm hearing is this challenge of getting buy-in. You kind of love that part. Yep. You love the creative part. You also love creating something that brings people together that has some impact, that has something in the world. Yes, yes. Look how happy you are and the energy levels up and you're like, yeah. So then here's my challenge to you. Tell that to your family. Okay. And be like, hey, these are the ways in which I like to play. Can we brainstorm some ways in which I can do that? You could even do it as tangibly as like, hey, 17-year-old, 13-year-old, and 7-year-old, can we do a play? <laughs> it's going to be a one-minute play. It's not even that long. But we're going to do this one-minute ridiculous thing. Why? Because I used to love to do this thing as a kid. It sounds absurd. It sounds ridiculous. But what's going to happen is you're going to tap into some inner child piece of you that's like, oh, we're playing right now? Oh, is that what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> is my challenge, Jeff, that I need to send you this video of this play? I didn't even think about that, but now I am like, <laughs> yes. Okay. Or possibly post it even better. And here's the reason why, and this is actually a really important lesson. Of, let's say you did something like this that was really ridiculous and funny and it has no purpose, right? For kicks. You post that. All of your friends not only see a part of you that they did not know, but also it inspires them to be like, maybe I want to do that with my kids. Maybe I want to be fun like that. I always reference this YouTube video. You can look it up. It's a dance video of this guy at a festival. He's dancing by himself for like 10 minutes. They only show three minutes of this, but 10 minutes. And people are mocking him. 
but he just commits to it. And then all of a sudden, these two guys join him partly to mock him, but they keep dancing with him. And then they realize as they're dancing with him, they're like, this is kind of fun. I actually like hanging out with this guy. And then others are like, maybe I should go over there too. So then three or four more people go over there. Within three minutes, this guy goes from by himself to 300 people around him. Oh my gosh. It's fascinating. And that's the magic play has to change the world. What haven't we said that is important to know about play as it relates to doing amazing work that we enjoy? I like to talk about it through the lens of Goodwill Hunting. First, the history of Goodwill Hunting is really interesting. Ben Affleck, Matt Damon made this movie. They wrote this movie because they weren't getting any acting gigs. They were in a few movies, but nothing was happening for them. Kind of like Lynn Moel Miranda. Exactly. Same thing with Awkward Black Girl, who now has one on HBO. So that's the first thing. Talk about play and talk about like risk-taking. And then they reached out to Robin Williams out of the blue. It was like, hey, would you be willing to do this with two actors that no one knows? And he was just like, yes, the script's so great. So play, taking risks, right? But the bigger lesson that I always talk about is in the movie Goodwill Hunting. Have you seen it? A long time ago, but yes. Uh huh. The premise of the movie is that Matt Damon's character is a genius and he can have any job he wants, but he grew up in a really poor part of Southie with his best friend, Ben Affleck. So at the end of the movie, they're working construction and Ben's like, yo, so when are you going to take one of these high paying jobs and stop working here? And Matt's like, I'm not. I'm not going to take any of those jobs. I'm going to work construction. We're going to raise our kids next to each other. And Ben turns to him and he's like, if I see you here in 20 years, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm literally going to kill you. And he goes, what, what, what? I owe it to myself. And he's like, no, forget you. You owe it to me because I'm going to be here 20 years from now. And I'm okay with that. That's just what I got. That's the cards that were dealt to me. But you, you are sitting on a winning lottery ticket and you're too scared to cash it in. And for every one of your listeners, they're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. And this is not about them cashing it in for themselves. This is not about you. This has nothing to do with you, actually, which is ironic. But it's about the fact that someone cannot show up until you show up. I cannot show up on this podcast if Winnie doesn't take the risk of creating this podcast. Do you see what I'm saying? Now I'm saying this and showing up. Now you, the listener, hears this and you need to do your thing because someone is waiting and they can't do their thing until you do your thing. So when people ask, I want to have an impact on the world, I want to change the world, all you need to do is do the thing that makes you come most alive and actually show up. So my question to your listeners is, are you ready to show up? So it's almost like jazz. You need to play your instrument so other people can riff off of you. So you got to cash in your lottery ticket so that other people can riff off of whatever that is that makes you cash in. Right. The ripple effect is needed. The biggest five regrets of the dying, one of the biggest regrets is I wish I had the courage to live the life that I wanted to live and not the life that others expected of me. When you don't live the life that you wanted to live, not only is this a disservice to you, but you are not allowing for that ripple effect to give permission for others to also live the life they want to live. Jeff, this has been so much fun. It really has. And I really appreciate you making it real. I definitely learned something. 
And I love the magic of there's some, I mean, I'm not just telling you this just because we're on this podcast, but there's sometimes when you do a podcast, because now I've done like 150 of these, where you're like, oh, there's some magic happening here. Yeah. There's something that we are co-creating yes. that we can create without each other. You challenging me and being like, tell me more. I don't actually believe you, which is great, forces me to go deeper. And then we get to a place that we couldn't do it. We have to co-create together. So yes, listeners, please embrace your play. All the answers are right there. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your amazing insights and just being who you are. Thank you, Jeff, for being here. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winita Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much. 